when you're recalculating in your car, you don't go back to the beginning. It's not like your car says, all right, Lori, go back to your driveway and start over. You take what you've already done. It includes everything you've put in. So I think a lot of people think of recalculating or pivoting or career changing as starting over, and it's not. It always takes everything you've brought to this point and sort of reallocates it. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Lindsay Pollock. She's a career and workplace expert and a New York Times bestselling author with a new book out called Recalculating, Navigating Your Career Through the Changing World of Work. March is International Women's Month and all month long, I'm bringing you conversations with women who are rethinking the world of work. So if you're having a moment during the pandemic and you're wondering what's next, where do I go? Well, sit back and enjoy this conversation about recalculating your career with Lindsay Pollock. Hey, Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Listen, I'm thrilled to spend time with you any day of the week. It's really my pleasure. We're buddies. We're pals. We go back a long ways. But for people who don't know who you are and what you're all about, why don't you introduce yourself? So I started my career 20 years ago, and I really give my origin story as being an RA in college. And I didn't know that you could make that a job, but I said, I want to be an RA for the rest of my life. Um, I should have gone into university administration, but I graduated into the dot-com boom. First job at workingwoman.com, which was a website for career women. It went bankrupt. I lost my dream job, which broke my heart, but I used it as an opportunity to start my own business. I didn't really mean to. And I started freelance writing and speaking about really early career issues because that's where I was. I wrote my first book, Getting from College to Career, in 2007. That caught the attention of LinkedIn. And for six years, I served as, quote, official ambassador for LinkedIn. My dad asked me if it came with diplomatic license plates for, <laughs> for my car, which basically meant that I taught public webinars about how to use LinkedIn. So I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. And for about 10 years, I was a college campus speaker. Leveraged that to get into the corporate market, teaching young professionals early career how to to build their careers and be successful. And then as I've kind of advanced, I also teach leaders how to manage, attract, and engage that early career talent. And in the process, I've had the honor to write four books and meet cool people like you. Well, Lindsay, I love that you're a leader and a teacher yourself, and you have a new book out. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the new book? The new book is called Recalculating, Navigate Your Career Through the Changing World of Work. I didn't mean to write it. I had just published a book last year called The Remix. And when COVID hit, all of my speaking business evaporated. And I'll be honest, my agent called and said, I think you should write a book. I feel like you are thinking about this stuff. And I just had this image in my head of that time in your car when you're driving along perfectly happy, but you make a wrong turn or you go down a road you don't know and the GPS says recalculating. And I just had this weird image that we were all in that situation where everything had been, you know, fine. And now suddenly we had to recalculate. And that was really the origin story of the book. Well, tell us a little bit more about who is a recalculator and who falls into what bucket? 
So my hashtag is we are all recalculating because I can't think of anyone who is just like, hey, everything's fine. Nothing's changed for me. It's really everybody. So specifically, college students and recent grads are always the audience that I think about first because graduating into this or being in college during this is a particular burden. And I have a lot of empathy for that. My cousin, Olivia, she's the youngest cousin in my family. She was a senior at Berkeley and she was class of 2020. And they never came back from spring break. They never had graduation. And she had this sort of open-ended situation. And she said, I just feel like for the rest of my life, people are going to look at my resume and say, class of 2020, woo, you know? And I said, you know, that we're all going to look like that. So college students, recent grads, obviously anyone who's been furloughed or laid off and is in the middle of a career change. I've also read that we've seen the highest number of business starts in the past year because people are saying, wait a minute, this is a big wake-up call. I want to work for myself. And then when I was about halfway through the book, I realized there are a lot of people who are recalculating in their same job, right? So nothing has officially changed, but they're realizing I need to upskill or I like working from home or I hate working from home. So really it's anyone who is realizing that they need to pivot or adapt for whatever this new normal is that we're in. Well, that certainly speaks to me as a fellow writer and a speaker. I mean, every day feels like I'm recalculating. So what are some of the first steps you recommend for anyone who's in this position, whether it's, you know, interviewing for a new job or reentering the workplace or even as a public speaker? and a first-time author. How do I recalculate? So I created what I call five rules for recalculators, and I can go through them quickly. But the first thing is to really think about the metaphor. When you're recalculating in your car, you don't go back to the beginning. It's not like your car says, all right, Lori, go back to your driveway and start over. You take what you've already done. It includes everything you've put in. So I think a lot of people think of recalculating or pivoting or career changing as starting over, and it's not. It always takes everything you've brought to this point and sort of reallocates it. So I think the First is just to understand that this doesn't mean you're starting from scratch. So the five rules really briefly, the first is to be more creative, which is maybe there are things you never thought you could do that you could do. I recommend taking a career assessment and saying, wait a minute, maybe my skills could be different. Maybe I could work in a different industry or have a part-time job instead of a full-time job. So you have to really expand your universe of possibilities. So for you, that might mean teaching on a college campus instead of two corporations. That might mean writing shorter articles instead of another book. So how can you deploy your skills in a more creative way. Number two is to prioritize action. People spend way too much time in their heads worrying and thinking. Number three is to control what you can, and that's totally mental, which is we don't know when this is going to end. We don't know when we're going to get the vaccine. We don't know what's going to happen. You can't obsess about that. But what you can control is how many jobs you apply to. You can control writing a new speech. You can control how many times you tweet about your book. So really focus on that. Number four is know your non-negotiables. What will you never do? <laughs> what do you want to do? I think some people forget that there are some boundaries around that. Then number five is my favorite. And I know you're so good at this on both sides, but it's asking for help. And I interviewed so many people in the book. And I think every story, there was some person or organization or Twitter feed that helped. And I think when you try to do it all yourself, you fail. I think we've all learned how connected we are and how much we crave that. So ask for help. Talk to your friends, other speakers, other authors, and ask them for advice and guidance. And that always pays off. Well, those are certainly good pieces of advice, and they speak to me in my heart and in my soul. I mean, that's why we're buddies. I wonder, what are some of the favorite stories in your book? What's one that comes top of mind that you can share that really summarizes what you're trying to get across in the book Recalculating? 
So there's a woman named Robin who was an HR professional, not as HR famous as Laura Ruderman, but she was an HR professional in retail. And she'd been working the same company for 13 years and she was laid off. And she had laid people off. She had been in the other side, as you know well. And she did three things that I thought were brilliant. Number one, she became a recruiter, part-time volunteer for very little money for the contact tracing operation in New York. So she got involved and volunteered her time. And she said it wasn't for the money, it was to give back and keep busy. Not only did that make her feel good about herself during her layoff, but during her interview for the job she subsequently landed, they were very impressed that she had contributed in a time of need for the state. So I thought that was terrific. The second thing she did was she said she spoke to over a thousand people. And she said, I know that sounds absurd, but she kept a spreadsheet and she just talked to people. And everything led to an interesting conversation. She said, now I have this great network going into my next job. She really networked and put herself out there. And she said, you might think you're crazy after the 100th person or the 200th person, but it takes a lot of work. So she really did that legwork. And the third thing she did was she formed a community, which I know is really powerful for you, of other job seekers. She got together with her friends who had also been laid off from the same company. And instead of seeing themselves as competitors, they saw themselves as a support network. And it turned out nobody was looking for the exact same job. They hung out together. They supported each other. They reported into each other. They cried to each other. And they were for jobs. And ultimately, she landed a job that was a fourth degree of separation from somebody in that network. And now she got this great job in commercial real estate, of all things, totally pivoted. But I think she just did a lot of work in a lot of really smart ways that are accessible and available to absolutely anybody right now. I love that story because right now there are so many people walking around saying, I can't network. This is the age of COVID. And for good reasons, I'm not leaving my home or I'm staying within a bubble. There is no way I can possibly develop or lean into a network right now during a pandemic. But your story about Robin is the opposite of that fear of that concern. So talk a little bit about that tension and how someone can get around that or through that. This is the tough love part of the <laughs> of the program, which is I know you might be uncomfortable, you have to do it anyway. She had said she was really embarrassed to have been laid off. She was a pretty senior executive and she had shame around it. And she didn't want to say, hey, I got laid off, but she had to get through that. And by being human and being vulnerable, people talk to her. She also knows a lot of people and was very open. And I know you and I both preach this. She said, how can I help you? right? What can I do to help you? And I always talk about this from my LinkedIn days. Reid Hoffman, one of the co-founders of LinkedIn, has always said people use LinkedIn wrong. They go in and say, what can I get? What can I get from the people I know? If you approach networking that way, of course, you're going to feel crummy about it because that's a crummy feeling. But if you go in and say, what can I give? Who can I help today? It completely shifts your mindset. He calls it doing small goods for people. I can like your post. I can answer your question. I can make an introduction. So if you go in to any situation like trying to network and say, how can I be of service to others? Of course, you know, it's also to help you, but it just shifts your mindset in a really powerful way. That's so interesting, Lindsay, because one of the ways that I feel like I'm doing some good in this world is by offering this podcast. Like I get to talk to people, I get to expand my network, and it's all done under the guise of COVID, right? I never leave my house, I never have to go anywhere, and yet I bring so many good people into my life, and I also get to offer them an opportunity to share their big ideas. What do you think about that? I love it. And you know, it may seem like I have a podcast, but you're doing a service. And I think about this all the time. Nobody's ever going to say, how dare you network with me on LinkedIn? <laughs> That's what LinkedIn is for. Or how dare you invite me on your podcast? How dare yeah. you invite me? 
invite me on your podcast. How dare you put a free resource on my iPod that or my my phone that I don't have to listen to if I don't want to? How dare you? It's a normal, wonderful, contributing thing to do. And I think what happens is it, the fear is in our heads, right? People who don't want to network, people who are afraid of it. They don't do it. You have to fight through that and start with the people you know. If I can tell just a a really quick story, I had a student who told me that she was very introverted and she wanted to work in television. She wanted to be like a producer and she was really, really shy. She went to a very small college. She didn't want to network. She was just very intimidated by the whole thing. So I convinced her to join LinkedIn and she said the only person that she was comfortable connecting to was her mom. And her mom worked at like a small business town. I was like, great. See, everybody knows someone, you know your mom. So she starts flipping through her mom's connections and she sees that her mom is connected to the former producer of The Rachel Ray Show. She says the name and her mom says, oh my God, we went to high school together. I didn't know what she was doing. And the girl ends up interning at The Rachel Ray Show. You never know. There was a study by Robin Dunbar, a psychologist, I quote it in the book. Everybody's connected to a minimum of 150 people. Even if it's just in your small town, your family, you know someone. We think knowing someone means a CEO or somebody, quote, important. Just start talking to people. Just like if you were looking for a new hair salon, you would say, hey, where'd you get your haircut? Hey, who do you know? I'm looking to get a job in TV. Do you know anyone who works in TV? And someone knows someone who knows someone. It's so powerful. You just have to ask. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman, author of Betting on You, how to put yourself first and finally take control of your career. Dan Pink is a New York Times bestselling author. He says that betting on you is indispensable reading for anyone seeking to improve their professional selves and attain that elusive work-life balance. Jesse Itzler is an entrepreneur and also a best-selling author. He called betting on you the ultimate insider guide that will inspire anyone to wake up, take that first step towards change, and finally have a thriving career that connects purpose and passion. You're not surviving a pandemic to live life like it's 2019. Want to fix your career? Pick up a copy of Betting on You today anywhere books are sold or head on over to bettingonyoubook.com. Now remember, support your local bookstore or go to bettingonyoubook.com. You know, I think one of the impediments to networking right now is well-being. And I'm not talking about physical well-being necessarily, but mental well-being. We're all in our own heads, right? In this world of COVID and the pandemic, and even if things are going okay for us, I think all of our personalities are a little deflated and a little depressed. So talk to me about the importance of well-being when you're recalculating and where that factors into the book, into our individual journeys as readers. It's very personal for me. I have suffered with anxiety. When I was looking for my first job, I had a very rough patch. And there were days when I just stayed in bed and I just couldn't get out of it. And you know what? Sometimes you have to do that. I got therapy. I worked with a life coach. I took medication. You do what you have to do. And so if you are in a very bad place, I think you have to care for that first. But that also means asking for help. And maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's your best friend. Maybe it's your roommate. But you have to get through that. So I don't believe in sort of fighting through and bare knuckling it to network. I think that one of the opportunities in this bizarre COVID time is to be a little bit more honest and to say, you know, I've been having a really hard time. And I think people will connect with that. I know I've always tried to put this like perfect veneer that fell apart in COVID. And I feel much more connected to people. One of the ways to access that Erica Keswin, who wrote a book called Bring Your Human to Work, says a really small way to do it is say, how are you? No, how are you? How are you really? 
And that really brings a different level of comfort. No, don't do that with like the CEO friend of your dad's, you know, business partner. You know, you want to use this sparingly. But I think mental health first, always. And then I think a little bit of authenticity. Nobody is perfect right now. And I think in some ways that breaks down some barriers. Well, tell us another inspirational story from the book about someone who's recalculating and doing it right. Some of my favorite stories are of the relaunchers who have raised kids and have gone back into the workplace and found jobs. And, you know, it's not a specific story, but it's more of a mindset is one person I spoke to said, well, I treated it as an asset. Not that I was coming in applying for jobs after raising my kids as like, oh, there's something against me. I have a black mark. Nobody's going to hire me. But like, I'm so unique from everybody else because I did this and you need those skills. So it was the mindset shift of I'm more valuable because of the time I've taken off. I'm more valuable because of my layoff. I'm more valuable because of my furlough or my different ability. And I thought that was a really powerful thing. My college roommate was very unique and kind of her own person. And one day she showed up to our dorm with one of those foldable trolley carts that like elder ladies have and she had her books in it. I'm like, like, what are you doing? And she's like, I just decided it's going to be cool to do that because I wanted it. I was like, you can decide what's cool. Like I, nobody told me that I, I'm wearing the same backpack as every other girl on the planet from LL Bean. And I realized you can choose to decide that your resume or your story is a great thing. And I, one of the stories you tell in your book is about how you as an HR person could tell if somebody walked in with confidence or not, and if they knew what they wanted. It just reminded me it's in your control to do that. There's no sort of solid truth about what's good or bad in a job search. You get to project that. And it was so powerful to me. I love the example of someone who's mid to late stage in their career, because I think there's this myth that it's easier for younger adults to recalculate and more difficult for older adults. And I think what you're getting at is really a universal truth, which is mindset. The role of mindset in your job search, in your career, in your life in general is just so key. So are you surprised when you heard the differences and some of the assumptions around early stage versus late stage and how they recalculated? Like, talk to me a little bit about that. It blew my mind how much mindset mattered at every stage and was almost the key factor. And I have to say, this is my fourth book. It's the first time I've written about mindset, which I'm kind of embarrassed about. And I made it the first chapter because I realized like it's been my awakening. Whether you are a recent college grad from a small state school that nobody's heard of, or whether you are 35 years into your career, the mindset made the difference because there is no universal law. I think there used to be, I do think this is relatively new, that it used to be you had to work for 30 years or you had to be in the same industry, all those rules have changed, right? So now when a 28-year-old can be the CEO of a big startup and a 70-year-old you know, is an intern, all the rules are changed. So you get to decide. And that mindset, not only did it, it sort of matter you know, in the job search, but it mattered in the whole process of how you approached it. And I really saw that difference. Carol Dweck talks about the growth mindset. That's a very popular concept now that I can do anything, right? That anything is possible. And I always thought, no, there are absolutes, right? If you don't have that experience, you can't do it. And that wasn't the case. You could make an argument for anything you wanted at any stage. You know, I'm not surprised to hear that it took you four books to write specifically about mindset, because there's something about that concept that's so, forgive me, Tony Robbins, right? And whereas Tony Robbins can really bring his whole ethos to that topic, everybody else does kind of sound like a copy of a copy of a copy. And yet there's something so core and critical to this idea that if you can see it, even in your mind's eye, you can be it. But I don't know about you, when I was writing my book, I constantly had to check myself to make sure I didn't sound like some cliche version of a self-help author. Is that a weird thing to admit? 
I was very afraid of that, but the reality is it works. There was a quote from Adenola Adeshola, who specializes in millennial careers, and I put it at the beginning of the book, and she said, if your mindset isn't there, nothing else matters. You could talk yourself out of anything. The other thing that was interesting was there was also data, because I always look for the data of economists, and they called it lane changing, which I love because the recalculating car metaphor, I pushed that pretty far in the book. And there was data, literal percentages of like, if you were, you know, weighted tables, if you were in food service, you were like 70% of the way to a transition to HR. One of the stories in the book is of a guy who was a chef and he got sick of being a chef and food service. And this was actually pre-COVID. And he sort of took an assessment and realized he was really good at logistics because he had had to order the food and do the line cook and, and all the planning. And he ended up transitioning that. And it was a pivot, but it was a 10% pivot. It was much less of a change than he thought. And the advice I give in the book, and I practiced it myself to make sure it worked, was you can type in professional speaker, easiest career transition, kindergarten teacher, career transition. And there are website after website that tell you what other potential career options are. And that was so powerful to say, if you just start looking, the world is your opportunity. Oh, that's really lovely. Well, finally, as we start to wrap up the conversation, you talked about some of your expertise on LinkedIn. And I think LinkedIn is still one of the most misunderstood and misused platforms. So talk to me a little bit about that and the role of other social media platforms in beginning this journey of recalculating. So social media, particularly now in COVID, is critical because that's where conversations are happening. So two thoughts. Every other network other than LinkedIn, I want you to think of as being on the sidelines of your kid's soccer game or going to the grocery store or being at a party. It's the way you socially say, Lori, oh, it's so great to see you. You look terrific. How have you been? And then my next conversation, I bring up career. It's where we reconnect and talk and we like each other, but then we take the conversation offline to talk about business. LinkedIn is like going to a network in conference where it's like, we know why we're here. <laughs> like, give me your business card. I'm here to network. So two thoughts on LinkedIn. Number one, the most important piece of real estate about you on the internet is your LinkedIn headline because people are going to look it up and it is 100% in your control. It's not your resume. There's no format. It is what do you want me to know about you? So I say stuff that thing to the gills with everything you want people to know. Use every character possible because assume nobody's going to look at anything else. That is your billboard of this is who I am. And if you're pivoting or recalculating, put the thing you want first. So number one, absolutely obsess over your LinkedIn headline. Number two is your alumni network, whether it's high school or a college or a school that you dropped out of. The alumni networks are powerful and the most likely chance you have of connecting with people. There's something called LinkedIn college alumni pages. You can look up your school and say, hmm, is there anyone here who works in publishing? Is there anybody here? You can search nine ways to Sunday. So it's like taking Google and limiting it to just people who have something in common with you who are more likely to respond. And I think people miss that really great resource on LinkedIn. I love that alumni recommendation. You know, I went to school for a year over in the UK and it was just a small little school, Regents University, just delightful. But that alumni network is setting me up for such great success with my UK book launch. Like I couldn't buy this kind of publicity. So it's just an amazing amazing untapped resource that not enough people take advantage of. And I wonder just really quickly if you have some insights on why we spend all this money, we go to university for four years, and then we never go back to that source of opportunity. You've got to think about what are my affiliations? fraternity or sorority, a club. I was an RA. I was on a rotary scholarship. Whatever it is, find those connections. And your university, your point, you spent a whole lot of money, a whole lot of money. Now draw the dividends on that, which is that network. And you know what? If you reach out to 20 people and eight respond, that's eight more than you would have had before. 
For sure. I love your math there, Lindsay. What a strong way to end on my favorite topic with a little bit of math. Thank you so much for being a guest today. We're going to have all your good stuff in our show notes. But more importantly, thanks for just being my buddy and a friend on this journey that we're both on together. Ditto. Let's fix work. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show today. For more information, including show notes and links, you can head on over to punkrockhr.com. And if you like what you heard today, head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.